If you've ever thought that just getting enough people to know about your band would be the one thing that would ensure your success in music, well, that's not the case. Today's guest was on American Idol back in the day and would like to share her story on why fame is not the magic bullet to success. Welcome to episode three of Behind the Band, where we're about helping you grow your music career by talking with awesome artists and people from the industry. My name is David Ryan Olson, and I run Evergreen Records, where we are all about helping artists like you grow, and I'm so honored that you've decided to join me today. Before we jump in, just wanted to say, if you are going to be releasing music in the future, I would love to help you make the next release your best release. We have put together a half-hour workshop called Rock the Release, and it's all about helping you plan and promote your next release for maximum success. We're going to teach you a proven strategy for getting on playlists, blogs, and shared by influencers so that you can get more streams and build a strong career. Just go to evergreenrecords.com slash workshop to sign up for Rock the Release. So today's guest is Haley Johnson, and if that name sounds a little familiar, it's because she was on American Idol a few years back, and we talked with her about her story getting on Idol and how she realized that was not the magic bullet for success in music. She says, it was a great experience, I got a lot of followers, but I also learned a lot about developing a business. So would love to jump in and just share this conversation with you. Without further ado, Haley Johnson. All right, Haley Johnson, how's it going? It's going great. How are you, David? I'm doing good. We are hanging out in your living room in beautiful Portland today. It's quite a lovely day, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, super stoked to finally have you on the show and uh, looking forward to, to hearing about everything that you do so amazingly. Oh man, I do my best. <laughs> I don't know about amazingly, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just, just tell us your story. My story began, as far as in relation to music goes, um, I began singing at a very young age, not publicly, but I remember singing as young as three years old. Like I have very vivid memories of, of finding out that I had this ability to to do this crazy thing that is singing and like being obsessed with it to the point where I wanted to keep it this secret that I didn't want my parents to know about. <laughs> I was so shy as a kid. And so fast forward, you know, 17 years or so, I finally got the nerve to kind of start using my voice and share it with a couple of my friends and did a solo at like a high school assembly, song somewhere over the rainbow. Okay, yeah. classic. Everyone's like, oh my God, what? How, since when? You know, how long have you been singing? And it was kind of a slow progression of figuring out that this was something that really made me feel like a full person. And when I hit college, I, I joined a chamber choir and a acapella group and started doing open mics. And that led me to um, kind of start songwriting and playing guitar and which led me to American Idol auditions and then a weird 15 minute fame thing. And then coming home from that, getting kicked off and living at home with my parents and confining myself to the back shed where I then wrote 
you know, just well over 100, 150 songs and then put out my first record. There's always a point that it seems like for musicians where they realize that this is something that they really want to do for real. And it's not just like, oh, my mom made me take piano lessons or, you know, I enjoyed singing growing up. Was there that moment for you? Definitely. There, there was that moment. For most of my childhood, though, I knew I loved singing to the point where I would like tear my voice apart just trying to match Celine Dion's high notes. <laughs> and I, I was just like obsessed. But I was a gymnast for most of my life. So I was, I was in the gym 24-7 and having competitions. I did it like competitively for eight years. And so I didn't really give myself the opportunity to say, yeah, this is what I want to do because I was so focused on gymnastics. Really? My parents never made me take lessons. They, they did, you know, introduce clarinet to me. They were like, you should, you should learn an instrument. I was like, I guess maybe. And it's like, got into clarinet, took a few lessons. I'm like, this is boring. I don't like it. <laughs> and so they never pushed, they never pushed music on me. But I had that moment definitely serious. It happened. I've had that moment a couple of times in my life. But the biggest moment was probably the American Idol moment. So most people don't just like walk in never having one to do music and just say, I'm going to audition for American Idol. Were you singing in a lot of places up until that point? Or I was, yeah. I wasn't a complete, like, didn't know what I was doing. I just didn't know how to perform. I didn't know how to, to engage an audience. I didn't have the confidence yet. I didn't have the vocal control. Like, I still sung and had a good voice and could, you know, hear if I was off pitch and I had the passion behind it, but I didn't have the professionalism or the, you know, I was, I was very green. That makes a lot of sense to say that like, okay, even though you know you have some talent and that you know this is something you're, you're very interested in. Uh, one of the things that we've talked about a number of times on this podcast is the concept of 10,000 hours as popularized by Malcolm Gladwell. That is perfectly in line with, with that philosophy of, okay, there's talent, but then there's also like, you got to like figure out, you got to have the grind. The one thing about those shows that I don't think a lot of people understand is that if you are somebody like me who went on to the show, not really having a lot of experience, it's, you're kind of shocked into reality. You realize how much, how much work it is. And yeah, for some people it happens overnight. For some people they get lucky or they have a certain niche and they don't really have to put in the 10,000 hours but for me, when I was on that show, I immediately, I was validated that I wanted to do music and get serious about it. And I was also validated that I was not ready <laughs> for that big stage. I was not ready for that attention. I just wasn't. I've realized from then until now, I've, I've just about put in the 10,000 hours and it's been a lot of work, man. Like even when I was on the show, I had a woman named Meredith Brooks, um, kind of putting me through artist boot camp. Um, she helped me. She had that hit song, Bitch, in the 90s. Anyway, she had a, like a hit at the age of 40 or something. And she was like, Haley, if you really want to do this, you have to eat, sleep, and breathe it. And I didn't understand that concept at the time. Now that I'm 100% independent in my business, I, I get it now. Like I, I, I eat, sleep, and breathe it. I think I work... 70 plus hours a week. I don't think I ever stop working. Wow. I mean, I, I do. I still have a life, but it's, it's more than a nine to five. That's for sure. You said something really interesting there when you were talking about your experience 
of American Idol, you now look back on it and say, I wasn't ready. I think that's a great, healthy perspective to have on something like music. It's very easy to like fall in the trap of saying, oh, I'm not cut out for X, Y, and Z because I wasn't born with a natural talent. But to have the perspective of, I wasn't ready, I, hadn't, I just hadn't put in the grit and the work to make that happen yet. Super healthy. And then I think so many young musicians and young creatives, having that attitude will serve them well just by saying, okay, maybe this wasn't right at this time, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm not a work in progress. Right. I mean, I get people all the time being like, oh, I, I wish I could be a guitar player, but I just, I just couldn't do it. It's like when you say things like that, like I, I wasn't a guitar player till I was 20 years old. That's when I picked up the guitar and now I can play it. I can support myself with it. I'm not the best guitar player in the world, but I picked it up and I made a choice to learn it. Like a lot of it is just like, are you going to make the choice to better yourself in an area and choose a couple of things that you want to master? You know, I still don't think I'm a master in anything, but I think that if you make a choice to put in the time, you'll, you'll learn something. So let's talk a little bit about that wake up call and trial by fire. Mm-hmm. Walk us through what the process of going on American Idol was like. As most people might not know, uh, when you audition for those shows, you aren't immediately in front of the judges. You're going through a cattle call. These days, I know a lot of people reach out. You can pass those steps because there's talent scouts. And they're like, we like you. We see you're working hard. You DIY artists, you. We want you on our show. You can go straight to the live audition or whatever. For me, it was like auditions from August of 2011 till March 2012 when I got kicked off. And how old were you at the time? 22, 23. Okay. And how long had you been kind of trending towards music as a career at that (laughs) point? Three years, if that, two, three years. So not much. I had just begun to learn music theory and yeah, it was very short. Yeah. Back to the, the American Idol experience. Get through the cattle call. What happens? You get through that and you get asked, you know, a month or two later to go to the next audition get past that and go to the next audition. I think that might've been the actual judge round was after the couple. You meet the judges, you meet Ryan Seacrest, you do that whole thing. Yeah. And in December, a couple months after August, the initial audition, everyone goes to LA and that's where like the big, uh, what do they call it? The Hollywood, Hollywood week happens. And, and that, that you're getting thrown in the deep end there. You're getting thrown in the fire and they don't give a, sh- they literally want you to, be exhausted. They want you to be stressed out. They want you to cry. They want you to freak out. They want you to sob to the camera and tell your whole life story. They want to push you to the point where they can get good TV out of you. (laughs) Is that purely just for the TV reality TV factor? Or is that like partially they want to see who's got what's an expression? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. They want to see who has, who can stand against the pressures of the industry. And in my experience, the pressures of reality TV versus the actual music industry are a lot different. They're both difficult, but this is more like manipulative manipulative pressure that reality TV entertainment world is putting on us during that time. So anyway, I made it through that and they're like, okay, so you made it to the top. What was it? Like 48. We're taking you guys all to Vegas. You're going to do a big like group round. You got to do a group song together. And then we'll cut you guys down to the top 24. 
in the top 24 was when the popularity happened. Like all of a sudden overnight, I had like 11,000 Twitter followers. Oh, and wow. They pretty much, you know, gave us all the blue check marks and they're just like, okay. And everybody who was like a fanatic of the show was like, oh my God, the top 24. And they'd like start public forums and fan pages for us. And wow. like, talk shit about us and tear us apart. And they're like, don't read your YouTube comments. <laughs> and we're like, oh my God, you're so mean. Yeah, it, it was very quick though. You know, they we had a few back and forth between Vegas and LA as a top 24 and then finally got to do our live performance. And then the next night they cut us down to the top 10 and we had to say goodbye to our friends on stage, on camera, give them hugs. And they sent us back to the the back back room and had us gave us cold pizza, had a goodbye interview, took us out of our nice hotel, slapped us up in a shitty one by the airport and we flew out the next day. Wow. And that was the end of it. Wow. Most people that achieve any level of fame, it, it, it usually doesn't happen overnight. Right. So, it shouldn't really happen overnight. Right. <laughs> and it, it seems like you almost... When it goes slowly, you have time to adjust and learn before, like, you know, the stakes are really that high. Being thrown into the top 48, 24, 10, like, that's basically overnight. Yeah. What were some of those growing pains? I just didn't really know what to do with it. I wasn't really proud of how I ended the show. It was actually pretty horrifying for me. Like, it wasn't a positive ending. It was, like, really sad, and I just didn't do a very solid performance, even though I had been trying and working my ass off to do it. I just think I was kind of set up to fail in a way, even though I came home and people were so proud of me and I had immediately had people asking me to play gigs. And I was like, Oh my God, I have to start practicing. I don't know. I don't know how to play gigs. I've never played gigs before. I've played open (laughs) mics. Like, does that count? Yeah. The growing pains were just learning how to actually be what people thought I was, was a, a, a real musician, which I don't, think I really was at the time. I was trying to be. And so I was kind of thrown into this world of, we want you to play shows and we want to do, we want to interview you. And what are you doing? When are we going to hear some music for you from you? And I'm like, Oh my God, like, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying, but I want to be proud of what I'm putting out. And one of the things that a decision that I made that kind of changed the course of my life was I had some people who were trying to get me to stay in LA and just start recording songs that were written for me, or maybe I maybe I co-wrote on, um, so that I can immediately put something out to keep the traction going. I imagine there are a ton of kind of sharks surrounding the American Idol experience. Yeah. Like if you get cut, there's still going to be people that are going to try and capitalize on that right. little bit of fame. Right. And so I came home, and a lot of people in my life were like, "Haley, I can't. You you should go to LA. You should do this." And I'm like, I literally just graduated college. I had, you know, took a lot out of me. I just finished this show. Like I need to come home and just figure out what the hell I'm doing and figure out what I want to say. And I really, it's important to me that I, that I write my own music at least now and figure out how to, how to do this. I don't want somebody tell, if I have someone tell me how to do it now, I might never figure out what I really want to do. And so Everyone thought I was crazy. My own family was just like, I can't believe you're turning this down. I can't believe it. I don't, they didn't know I could write a song. I didn't know I could write a song. And so I started writing every day and demoing out all my songs on GarageBand and 
wrote some terrible songs. I still have them. I'm like, oh my God, I hope these never see the light of day. And just worked my ass off and finally had enough songs that I felt like were worthy of being truly produced and recorded. When I showed my parents these songs, they're like, oh my God, honey, we're so sorry. We didn't believe in you. Like, holy crap. Like, these are so amazing. Like, you know, my parents loved my songs, obviously, but... I, it was kind of a moment of that growing pain of having that pressure of, okay, time to go sell out or time to figure out who you really want to be. I think that's really awesome that you figured out pretty quickly after that experience what you did and didn't want and knew that it meant coming home and hitting the ground running and, and working your ass off again. I, th- I think a lot of people have this misconception that as soon as you get any sort of level of tension, you can just like coast from there Mm -hmm. on out but your story is almost a testament to like okay even though you have a little bit of a following and some notoriety you still kind of have to work for it Mm -hmm. so tell us about that next season of your life you've come back to Oregon you were like okay I'm just gonna do my own thing I'm not gonna do the the manufactured LA thing I'm just Mm -hmm. I'm just gonna do what I want to do so I guess that that next chapter, the next couple of years, I was living at home with my parents and I started doing a couple little gigs here and there, just me and my guitar. And I was feeling really like exhausted at how difficult it was to support myself for all these songs. And I, I knew I wasn't at the level guitar wise to, to play some of the songs I wanted to sing or it's like, I just needed help. And so around 2014, when I was actually recording my album through the blue, my EP, I was like, okay, I need a band. I need a band that's going to help me basically play these recorded songs that are produced live. So I can do a big show. Like I really wanted to do a big show and, and I don't want to have to play guitar all the time. (laughs) I just want to sing. And so I, I started putting my band together. I, really wanted to make sure I was getting involved in the Portland music scene. And I was so nervous. I didn't know how to do that. I didn't really know anybody. And my friend was putting on this event at the Aladdin Theater called Portland Soundcheck. And I was introduced to like this whole pool of people and musicians my age who were like real musicians. Like they'd been doing (laughs) it for a while. They were playing shows, they were gigging. And I was like, oh my gosh, like these are my people. These are the people I need to be hanging out with. And that really changed my life because I found people that I could ask questions about and just relate to. And that's really when I I stepped foot into the Portland music scene and started to just get more involved that way. And I ended up having my big release show, I think in like June of 2015 at the Aladdin Theater. I wasn't sold out, but there were a lot of people there. (laughs) And it was, my dad was on drums because I had to fire my other drummer the week before the show. (laughs) Long story, but lots of learning curves and making your first record, putting together your first band, having your first big release show, all with only having been writing music for three years and performing for about that long. It's not that crazy. A lot of people can do that or have done that or are doing it. But that that was just my journey and it all happened a little later in my life, but I'm really glad it did. So what were some of the specifics of that chapter that you did? Um, Because I know there are a lot of people that are like, okay, I know I need to get out of my bedroom. Mm -hmm. Even if you're writing songs all day long and you're recording and demoing, 
if you're not plugged into the scene and building relationships, you're not going to get very far. What were some of the things that you did in order to start getting like plugged into the scene better? I started playing shows with friends, kind of sitting in on their sets. I, I met a local promoter who introduced me to some other other bands and it just kind of became a, like it was a domino effect of like the you meet this person they know, they know this person introduce you to that person and then all of a sudden you're like holy shit I know everybody here <laughs> <laughs> I remember having like some some female songwriter like meetups with a couple girls one of the first ones was with the, the band Joseph who oh, yeah. are now like they were just starting out as Dearborn really, and just playing locally and um, before they started really touring and hitting the ground running. Um, but yeah, they were some of the first girls that I just had like a meeting at some other girl's house and we were just like talking about music and our struggles and our, you know, the excitements and we sung together. It was very just like this camaraderie thing and yeah, I just think I, I still do that to this day. I still have girlfriends who are all amazing musicians and making music currently this in this town. And we just, we get together every once in a while and just like talk about our feelings and like what's working, what's not working. Oh, here, play, let me, let's hear this new song I'm, I'm working on or let's write a song together. You know, I think that's really important to have that kind of community. Well, I, I think that's so important. That social factor are the people that are around you supporting you having those people that are like in the trenches with you that really want to see you succeed. That's huge for like emotional support. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's been a lifesaver, honestly. Like for a while I didn't have a lot of music friends and I think I still have a lot of friends that aren't musicians and I love those people. I think it's important to have a balance, but for a long time in my life, you know, I, I wasn't friends with musicians and I didn't really feel like I fit in anywhere. I don't know. I can't really explain it. Like in in high school and college, I just kind of felt like I was a little odd. I I mean, I I fit in, but I didn't really feel like I did. I felt like I, I couldn't, there was something about myself that I didn't feel like I could show or that I wasn't fully expressing until I met people that got it. (laughs) You know, not even just musicians, but other creative people. Yeah. How long do you think it really took you to find your stride? Okay, I feel like I'm in a little bit of a groove in yeah. terms of like, I found my people, I feel like I have direction. When I first got the opportunity to jump on tour with another band and really get the experience of being on the road, like that was hugely impactful for me. You know, realizing that I could do it, <laughs> just how important it is to go outside of your city and play music. I feel like that was really helpful for building my fan base. When you when you do something like that, you know, it, it kind of opens your eyes to the possibility of where your music can go. And since then, I've had a lot of other op- other opportunities to go on tours with people, and I've had some amazing local release shows and I feel like I am on a trajectory now where I can I can put on a great release show. I have a really solid band that I love working with. Your first EP, yeah. Um, what was the process of how that came to be? I actually had an investor. Oh, cool! Who watched me on the show from my parents' church? Oh, wow! And he he paid for the record. That's awesome. So I did. I got really, I was really blessed and really lucky to kind of just not have to think about or worry about the money because I, I was still living at home. I didn't 
I didn't have much money and I didn't feel like I could, I didn't know that I could ask even for it and ask my community at least. I was really blessed to have him help with that. Second one that came around, I kind of had to figure it out on my own. I didn't want to ask him again. So No, totally. So what was the process of, of gearing up for that record? This record was made after a lot of gigs with my, my old band that I had. We went into the studio and made this, this record. I was like, okay, I need to pay for this. I'm going to do Kickstarter and I'm going to do 15 grand. Wow. And I made it. Wow. <laughs> okay, that's awesome. I look back and it was a lot of work and mailing everything out at the end, all the rewards and everything. Like, you know, that was no joke. Like when anybody does a Kickstarter or a Patreon or anything like that, where you're involving your community and your fan base and they're helping you by you rewarding them in return. That's a lot of fucking work, man. That is like, I have mad respect for anybody who's doing a campaign like that. Yeah. Cause it's hard. It's really hard to ask people for that kind of help. It's hard to be that vulnerable and, but you know, you'd be surprised at how many people want to be involved in helping make something. Totally. So what were some of the things that you've learned through that first couple of Kickstarter experiences? Uh, if someone is about to start their first one, any, any advice? Any advice? Um, be realistic about your prizes. You know, be realis- realistic how much it's going to cost if you have to mail a bunch of stuff out. Be realistic about if you want to promise people vinyl, mm-hmm. vinyl might not be ready. In time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I never did that, luckily, but I have had a funny experiences with making vinyl. Really look into what you're offering people and how much time it's going to take you to do. Remind people often about it. And I noticed that most people donated in the very beginning and at the very end. Mm. that's when like the most excitement was happening for it. So if you're in the middle of your Kickstarter campaign, you're like, no one's donating in the past two days. Like that's okay. Just really kick it up when you know that the time, the clock starts ticking. I would say, get creative with your video, get really clear with like what it is that you're making and get people excited. Um, I can't really tell people how to do that, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, what I did for my second campaign, which was quite a bit less money then the first one was I did all green campaign. I did no paper. Oh, wow. No, no paper, no shipping. Um, I was like, I'm going to make this easy on myself. And I'm going to offer voice lessons. I'm going to offer a cover of a video, a, a song to like record and send to them. I'm going to offer downloads, um, links to all my lyrics, like just stuff that was easily transferable digitally or in person, but not so that I was like in handwriting cards for like two weeks. Like (laughs) that is so thoughtful and great. If you wanted to spend time doing that, I'm not that kind of girl. I've never been into arts and crafts. (laughs) I have like very little patience for stuff like that. And my handwriting is terrible. You don't want (laughs) to see that. You won't be able to read anything. Love it. Um, I actually did that for my first campaign. I hand wrote the lyrics on the back of all these postcards. And I was just like, oh my God, why did I do this? But people, it means something to yeah. people as well. You know, I just you, don't want to- save that for the $5,000 donors. Yeah, 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 exactly. I don't want to promise that to like 500 people. Be aware of what you're promising people. So shifting gears a little bit, uh, would love to hear some about some of your experiences on tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe just talk about like the first couple of tours you did, what you learned, 
through those experiences. Keep track of your shit. Anything gear-wise, stuff you might leave in the hotel. I mean, the first couple tours, I lost and left behind so many things. Like, you just have to be so mentally organized about what you've what you're bringing. I I found the first couple times because I was by myself on stage having to like set up all my things. I, I just wasn't good about keeping my cords organized and like little things like that. Just like how you showed up today with your computer and your mics and your mic stand, like you have this down. Um, I did not have this down when I first started touring. There's a learning curve there and I still don't have it 100% figured out. Like there's better ways to stay organized with your gear and to keep it safe. Yeah, I mean, keep people engaged while you're on the road. Make it exciting. Make it an exciting thing for people to watch. Take care of your voice. Don't party too much. <laughs> don't, don't drink and smoke too much. Because uh, if you're singing almost every night, you know, you're going to start to feel it. And even just singing and not doing anything, you're going to start to feel it. It's tiring being on the road. It is very, very tiring, especially if you're the one driving. I've toured a lot of different ways. I've toured on a tour bus. I've toured in a Sprinter van. I've toured by myself in a car, not by myself, but with a friend. I've done it all. I've been in car accidents. I've had some pretty yeah, scary times and not been able to sleep on tour buses because we're moving overnight. Like Touring is exhausting and scary in a lot of ways, but also the most fun you'll ever have. You just got done with a, a pretty cool tour in Europe. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Europe tour, man. This is my second one. Same thing as last the year before. Um, just me, my electric acoustic guitar, stomp box, foot tambourine. Brought one person with me. This time it was my friend Johnny, who is fluent in German. And then my now fiance, Eric, who is great at selling my merch that he made. <laughs> great pitches. <laughs> it's amazing getting to tour all these different European countries and everybody's so kind and they they're listening like it's kind of night and day from performing in the, the US really as far as the venues and people being respectful and and sitting down and listening and it's amazing to, to play out for people over there because they really appreciate it and they buy a ton of merch oh that's cool too so there's something really amazing about touring over there it is difficult when you don't speak the language and you're, you know. But I imagine that gives you like a little bit of like a mystique, whether or not they have opinions about America. You're still like, oh, this person's, you know, from far away. Yeah, it's, I think it might maybe being American is exciting to them. The older generation uh, is the most receptive to my stuff over there. They're the ones who buy CDs still. <laughs> yeah. It, it was a really long tour. It was six weeks. It was almost every night. I had eight days off in six weeks. So it was extremely taxing on my body and my voice and my mental and emotional state. But I had someone with me there to help me drive and help me set up. And yeah, I would do it again though. Yeah. You also have a cool opportunity to play bass and do BGVs for an artist named Big Wild. Mm -hmm. How did that come to be? So that came to be um, because my friend, who is also an amazing singer-songwriter, Maria Massa, she got hired on as the backup vocalist and lead guitar player for his project last March. And she recommended me to be in another backup vocalist because he was looking for a soprano. I don't sound like a soprano right now, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I sent him like a little voice recording when I was at the airport about to leave for my first Europe tour. Sent him a voice memo. When I landed in Germany, got a call from the manager and he's like, hey, you sound great. Uh, we'd love to have you on our, our tour in March. Uh, but do you also play bass? And I was like, yeah, 
I never played bass in my life. <laughs> it's the same thing as guitar. Yeah, so not really at all, though. <laughs> it's not. I bought a bass the next day in, in Dresden, Germany, and I started learning all the bass parts during my Europe tour. Came home after my tour for two days and jumped straight on a month-long tour bus tour. Oh, wow. With him. So there wasn't even like, you know, time to like jam and no. you just had to hit the ground we, running. We had some rehearsals, like okay. three days of rehearsals or something. What's it like playing on those shows? Because I imagine they're they're pretty big. Most of the times they're like big, big theaters, um, but fit a few hundred to a thousand people. We've done a lot of festivals. Like last year we did Outside Lands and there was, I think, 50,000 people wow. in total watching us. Like we could see us just a sea of people, you know? We sold out Red Rocks last year to 10,000 people. <laughs> but that'd be so amazing. It's it's pretty crazy. Like it's it's wild in the sense that it you, I've never experienced really that kind of show. And it's so different because I have, I'm playing with a click track. I'm playing with totally different kind of music. I'm totally out of my element in some ways. Um, but it's so exciting because you have the light shows and the visuals and um, you just have the, the vibe and the energy at these shows is so much different than, than mine, obviously. Um, so it's really fun. It's a really fun creative outlet for me to just kind of jam out on bass and, and be a part of a project that's doing really well. And, you know, as a, a working musician who's trying to make a living for my own project, you know, in the meantime, it's also an amazing opportunity to to make some money to help fund my project because I'll be honest like there's I'm just not in the position right now as Haley Johnson to fully support myself unless I was touring 24/7. So what what's it kind of like with that duality of on one hand you're an artist on your own right doing your own thing yeah. but then also you're being brought on to play shows and what what's it like switching gears and is there one that you know has taught you about the other for me it's really fascinating to watch and see somebody whose career is kind of blowing up and to be a part of it and kind of just see how he's doing it and the the work he's putting in and the the team that he has and that makes it all possible It, it inspires me a lot and it makes me feel like it's not so far out of reach for me in in a sense um being able to visualize that a little bit more. Definitely, yeah. Visualizing it and seeing, okay, this is what it feels like to be at this kind of festival, to be behind the scenes, to be in this, in this this on the stage. Like, I feel like I'm, I would be a lot less, I would be nervous a lot, you know, if it was my show at Red Rocks, but I would also feel more prepared <laughs> in, a, in a way for it. It's not really that scary to play in front of a lot of people. And in fact, it's sometimes scarier to play in front of a few people. And I've, I've now learned that it's like, you kind of have this detachment that happens. Like you have a connection, but also like, it's not so scary. If you had to give just one piece of advice to an artist that's either just starting out or thinking about launching a project, Mm -hmm. I know there's a million things you could, you could offer advice wise, but like, uh, what would just be one thing you would offer them? One of the things that was hardest for me when I first decided to be 100% devoted to this and quit my jobs you have to be your own boss. And that means you have to make your own schedule. And that means you have to make your own sacrifices and know what those are and know what the things are that are going to get in your way. You have to be just aware that you have to be your own, your own marketing person, branding person, 
you just have to be organized. My biggest piece of advice is just be organized about every area that it takes to be successful in this industry. And there's a lot of things. You aren't just a musician anymore. You have to kind of ha- be on top of a lot of the things and ask for help in the areas that you aren't sure of. Watch a lot of YouTube tutorial videos on things. I've had to learn how to use Adobe uh, Illustrator and uh, Final Cut Pro and because I'm running Facebook ads to try to keep momentum going while I, I'm doing other things. You know, it's like I'm on my own right now, but hopefully I won't be for long. But do everything that you can to just make sure that your business is running. I, I've made sure that I have enough time in the morning to kind of have some time to myself. I do yoga every day. I kind of have like a system to get myself prepared for just sitting at my computer for a long time or rehearsing. I just think that you have to kind of have rituals for yourself and have a plan written out. Keep Make lists of things. Just don't give up. Just keep trying and don't compare yourself to people. That's another big piece of advice. Be you. Work your ass off. Stay organized. <laughs> that is it. The secret success That's right the there. That's the secret. That's my secret recipe. Good luck. <laughs> awesome. Well, Haley, thanks so much for, for taking a little time and hanging out and talking and sharing some insights totally. and some stories. Thank so. you very much for having me, David. Yeah, absolutely. So that's it for my conversation today with Haley Johnson. And just a real quick thing before we go, if you are working on new music or would love to know how to better promote your music, please sign up for our free half-hour workshop called Rock the Release. It's just going to teach you a proven strategy for releasing and promoting and planning your next release so that you get the most success. We'll help you get on playlists and blogs and shared by influencers. So just go to evergreenrecords.com slash workshop to sign up for that. Also, if you are listening on the Apple Podcasts app, would love if you could just give us a quick five-star review. Really helps the show rank higher and more people find the show. And plus, it just lets us know that you are appreciating what you're hearing. But for now, that's it. And we'll see you next week.